Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, attorney at law. And this is a show where we talk about all sorts of topics uh, ranging uh, from anything in the uh, labor and employment sector. So this week, uh, the topic we're going to talk about for the next hour is Paris Hilton. No, that's not a labor and employment topic. So unless you are a employee working in a sweatshop making various types of Paris Hilton paraphernalia, please call in. We'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, other than that, that is the the last time you will hear that name for the next hour. What we are going to talk about uh, this time is I'm getting behind on some of the questions that readers are sending in and uh, listeners are calling in with. So I'm going to go sort of through a potpourri of different uh, questions that we have that relate to a variety of uh, wage and hour topics, labor and employment topics. Some of these are more trivial topics. But these are the types of things that employees deal with on a day-to-day basis, either when they're at, you know, terminated from their job or are working on the job. So just a variety of uh, a variety of little miscellaneous issues. Hopefully, catch up on some of the uh, the email that we've been uh, receiving here. If you do have questions, please uh, you can send them to us via the internet at uh, www.laborlawradio.com. That's all one word. And there's a link there you can submit uh, an email question to me. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-678-7229. That's toll-free at 888-MR-TRACY if you have any questions. So I do have some administrative cleanup that we have to do from uh, from last week's show. Last week we talked about uh, wrongful termination. And I did receive some uh, very positive feedback and some email and some Disconcerting email because it didn't sound like people quite got all of the uh, the concepts to wrongful termination. As I said, it's a very difficult case to prove. It's a very uh, you know nuanced area of the law, and there's a lot of a lot of things that go into it. So before you you know jump out there and immediately assume you've been wrongfully terminated, please do some research on the internet or uh, you know speak to an attorney and find out what your rights are and and what exactly these different causes of action are. Uh, some of the questions that I had, and I'm going to cover them briefly. If you didn't listen to last week's show, uh, you know, wrongful termination, very difficult concept. First of all, you have to be terminated. If you quit, uh, proving a constructive discharge case is extremely difficult, and we talked about a lot of the elements there. But the question I got into that a reader had or listener had submitted dealt with this after-acquired evidence issue, or this after-acquired evidence defense. As I said... That is the defense attorney's number one favorite defense. They love it. And there's a little bit of misunderstanding about it in that, you know, what you can use it for. They can use it for absolutely anything. So if you were terminated after three years on the job, they can go back for the last three years of your employment from the day that you submitted your first job application and anything that you did in those three-year periods, if they discover anything that would have allowed that employer to terminate your employment, that will defeat your wrongful uh, termination claim because the company could have terminated you a year earlier or two years earlier, or maybe they never would have hired you if you hadn't lied on your job application. So the number one thing is falsification of job applications. And what you know rises to the level of, uh, of you know a falsity that would allow an after acquired evidence defense is a gray area. But certainly, if you lie about a criminal record, that's going to be enough. If you make up a educational uh, degree or something that you didn't have, or you said you went to a school that you didn't go to, 
that may be sufficient enough to knock out your wrongful termination claim. So it also applies to your time in employment. So the number one thing is employment applications. But if you falsified a performance uh, review of yourself or if you had lied or even if they found out you had stole something from the company, pretty much anything that uh, happened during your employment time, if they do discover it later, they essentially can retroactively fire you for it. Now, they don't get to recollect those wages because, you, you know, you did work for them and you did perform that work. But you no longer have a right to be employed at that company. And that causes, you you know, your claim to diminish greatly because, one, you can't demand reinstatement because the company has a right to terminate you. They determined you lied on your job application, so they, they can't be required to take you back on the job, which is what a lot of people frequently want in a wrongful termination case, especially if you're looking for some type of vesting period. You were, you know, six months short of retirement or, you know, five years short of retirement, and you really wanted to get vested in that pension plan. So if you do need some type of vesting like that, it's absolutely critical that uh, you don't have any of these after-acquired evidence defenses. So they, they, they can really come around and get you. They are very, uh, you know, something a lot of employees don't know about, but uh, definitely be cautious for uh, after-acquired evidence. Don't lie on your job applications. Don't lie on your performance reviews. Don't steal stuff from your company. Uh, you know, don't do that anyway, even if you don't have a wrongful termination case. But uh, it can make those things uh, much more complicated. So the second issue, I got a lot of people, actually a lot of people talking to me about this at, at work and uh, things like that, so nice to know they're listening to the show, but that was, again, this illegal employers concept. Now, I've said we're going to do an entire show on illegal employers, and we will get to all of that, but people keep asking me, well, if you have these laws, and who can sue, and why isn't anything being done about it? Well, we're going to cover that in our Illegal Employers show, but basically there's two main areas that are being used currently. There's an, uh, an attorney up in Northern California covered, doing a very interesting case who's using the RICO statute, which is a federal statute for rap, racketeering, influencing corrupt organizations, essentially something that was passed uh, you know, 50 years ago to deal with the uh, – over 50 years ago to deal with the uh, mob influence and uh, corrupt organizations – type of, uh, you know, organized crime type of thing. He is using it to essentially claim that they're using this corrupt organization, this, you know, use of, uh, of undocumented workers to, to illegally depress wages. So very interesting case there. There's a lot of stuff there. Hopefully we can get the uh, attorney as a, as a guest on the show. Uh, the one that I've used it in is this uh, private attorney general statute, which does give private employees the right to enforce California labor laws, that's a pretty new area of the law. It was the Private Attorney General Act of 2004. There are some attorneys that are trying new things with it. We're trying new things with it. But we're not exactly sure how well it's going to work out. And when we get into that on that, on that show, we'll talk about some of the problems that we've had with it, some of the successes we've had with it, but also some of the uh, the problems with it. But those are the two areas, uh, mostly it was attorneys that were interested in what, uh, what we were talking about there. So hopefully everybody else who wasn't an attorney found that uh, will find that interesting as well. So in any case, let's get to your questions. Now, we have an interesting question that one listener submitted. I'm going to get to that the second half of the show. But if you listen to, if you're familiar with Bill Handel, the radio talk show host, very popular uh, radio talk show host, sort of does a legal uh, commentary thing on the weekends and uh, sort of does socio-political commentary during the week, just like uh, a lot of talk radios. Anyway, a listener had caught uh, a rather interesting conversation going on in his show, and we're going to take a look at that in terms of labor law violations. Um, so interesting thing. I'm, I'm glad somebody spotted that. 
Getting to uh, you know the more mundane questions that we have, the typical type of stuff that uh, comes in here. Here's some of the uh, questions that have been stacking up that uh, we're going to all clear out this week. I was hired as an independent contractor for a mortgage company and am paid 10.99. I was terminated for what they say what they say was poor performance, but I was one of the top producers in the company and have documentation to prove it. I was not paid for any of the loans that I have sold that closed after they wrongfully terminated me. Wow. This is chocked full of labor law issues. Hopefully we have enough. I could talk for the full hour just on this one question. So we're going to break it down into the variety of things that we have here. Now, first of all, you know, we you throw the word wrongfully terminated in there. You know, we just talked about that, and, and, and I'll go over just as a recap here because we've kind of beat it to death. But wrongfully terminated means you were terminated for some reason relating to your age, race, gender, national origin, um, marital status, whether you raised a safety or labor violation. It doesn't look like you did anything there. You know, perhaps it was based on your race, but there's nothing in, you know, this fact pattern here. There's nothing in this question that says this was based on any of those protected characteristics. It sounds like they said you were a poor performer and you feel that you were a great performer. We'll even take your word for it that you were uh, one of the top producers, even the top producer in the company. That for wrongful termination is absolutely irrelevant. The employer is perfectly, it's perfectly legal for the employer to lie to you about the reason that you were terminated. As long as they are, the, the, I mean, the real reason they're covering up is that it was based on you know racial discrimination, one of those protected characteristics. Then it's wrongful termination. But if they they terminated you because the owner's mother doesn't like you, perfectly legal, and it's perfectly legal for them to say they really terminated you for poor performance. So, you know, in this case, it sounds like maybe they gave you a a, a false reason for terminating. I don't know why they they terminated. Genuinely, generally, my experience is that companies don't terminate top uh, producers. It's, it's bad for their bottom line, and they're willing to put up with quite a bit of shenanigans from top producing uh, employees. So in any case, the reason that they terminated you, not really relevant here because there's a very, very good chance that it wasn't one of the protected areas that uh, would qualify you for wrongful termination. So uh, that one probably out. But the rest of your stuff, uh, very good uh, issues here. Independent contractors are not covered by California labor law. So you don't get any of the protections of overtime, minimum wage, any of that stuff. But it's highly unlikely in this case that you were an independent contractor. Even if they pay you on, on 1099, 1099 is a type of a tax form that they give you at the end of the year rather than W-2. And that is used for vendors and independent contractors. But that is completely irrelevant for determining whether you are an independent contractor or not. Now, I'm not going to talk about the tax issues. You know, you could probably petition the IRS. There's something called an SS-8 form that you submit to the uh, the IRS, and they can you know help you recover some of your back Social Security contributions and things like that. I don't really want to get into that right now because it's just an extra little sort of cherry on top of the cake that doesn't uh, doesn't really change the uh, the determination either way. But Independent contractors, it doesn't matter if you sign a contract. It doesn't matter if they call you an independent contractor. It doesn't matter if they pay you on a 1099 or they give you cash under the table or whatever those things are. Those are not relevant. What is relevant is, you know, the type of work that you do, the economic reality of your job. So there's a whole slew of different criteria for this. And 
I can tell you this is a, a diff difficult area of law because there's a whole bunch of different definitions for employee-employer relationships. The IRS, like we talked about for the taxes, has one definition that they use for independent contractors and employees. The For workers' compensation claims, if you're injured on the job, it's a different set of standards for uh, employee and independent contractor. For a claim for wages unpaid overtime, just uh, they didn't pay you your final paycheck, that is yet a different standard for independent contractor employee relationship. Now, fortunately, most of these standards are substantially similar, and they all come down to basically, you know, you can sum it up pretty simply. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. Now, there are some gray areas, but in this case, it sounds like you're a uh, loan officer, some, some type of a loan salesperson working for a mortgage company. That's not a traditional area where independent contractors would be uh, would be used. And an independent contractor is going to be someone that essentially has their own business, that has control over the means of producing the goods or services that they're trying to produce, and is really only given an end result. So, I mean, if you're contracted out, I mean, you see it a lot in, you know, the technology sector where I want somebody to write me the documentation for such and such a piece of software. And they give them the software and they go away for three months or three weeks, and then they come back and they produce a user manual or they produce some specification document, and, and the person gets paid for it. That you're probably an independent contractor for. You know, I mean, if you're employed in a company and all you do is write documentation for their software product and you're doing the exact same thing, and they're giving you some more guidance and direction in terms of what your deadlines are, what you have to do, uh, what goes into those particular pieces of documentation, then doing the exact same thing you're going to be an employee. So, I mean, it, there are some, you know, it is a fine line and, you know, and there's been a number of cases for this. But, I mean, ultimately, if you just work for one person or if you just work for one company, you're probably going to be an employee. It's going to be a pretty high bar for them to say that you're a, an independent contractor when you're only a source of income is one uh, one company because the economic reality is is that they do control your uh, employment there simply because you rely on them for uh, for your livelihood but there's a whole bunch of factors that go into it but in this case tax is not relevant if you signed a contract that said you're an independent contractor not really relevant what is relevant is you know what type of work you were doing and who you were doing it for and as a loan officer you're going to be most likely a uh, an employee and that means you get a whole slew of labor law protections. The entire world of wage and hour law and employment protections uh, opens up to you in general. You know, if you're discriminated against, if you're uh, uh, sexually harassed, all of that would uh, only apply to uh, employees. I mean, there are some certain other areas that, uh, that that gets into, but for for employment law, you need to be an employee in order to, uh, to sue under the labor code. So now that you have that, so you weren't wrongfully terminated, but you're, you were an employee of this company and you know, there may be some issues there in terms of overtime. You're a loan officer, so you're most likely entitled to overtime if you were working a lot. But the issue that you raised here is unpaid commissions. Now, commissions are wages under both California and federal law. The issue is, and this is a tricky one, what happens to your commissions after you quit? So you sold some loans and... You know, basically what happens, I mean, if you haven't gone through the loan process, you know, a loan officer will contact you, try to tell you that you need to refinance your house. You agree to that. 
and there's a whole bunch of paperwork. They need to get appraisals. They need to get title reports. They need to get title insurance. They need to get signatures from you and verify your employment and put all of that into a file and package it up and get it approved. And that process can take a, you know anywhere from a, a couple weeks to a couple months, depending on how complex the loan is and you know how good your credit is and things like that. So the question is, I mean, if you sold this, you know, you convinced the person to take this loan on day, you know, one while you were an employee there, and then two weeks later they terminate you, are you entitled to those commissions? Well, that's a an interesting area of commission law, and the answer isn't always clear cut. The the law is that you're entitled to be paid for all the work that you did. Unfortunately, that doesn't give us a very good standard for exactly how much work that uh, you know was done for these commissions. So if the vast majority of the difficult stuff is indeed getting the, this initial signature on the first page and the rest is all sort of mechanical and clerical and not really that important, chances are you're going to get a large percentage of the uh, the loan amount of your, of your your commission amount. But if you know, and in loan officers' cases, that that's largely the case. I mean, the the big thing is, uh, you know, getting the sale of the loan. The rest is sort of mechanical. Obviously, the borrower can back out. They can change their mind. You do need to continually sell them. So you're not going to get 100% of the commissions, you know, if, if you quit two weeks into the loan. But, you know, generally it's, you know, it, it might decrease by 10% a week or 20% a week, but, uh, you know, not 100% on uh, the day that you quit. Other types of uh, commissioned labor can be much more complex. You know, I mean, if you're selling a big contract to, you know, the government or something like that, and you quit the day before the uh, government approves the uh, the multi-million dollar contract, uh, you can get, uh, you know, a substantial portion of that done. On the flip side, if you just made the initial phone calls to a large prospective customer and then you quit, another salesperson closes the deal and, and executes a million-dollar agreement, you're probably not going to get anything at all, uh, depending on you know what the length of time is and how complex the, uh, the arrangements are. So commission work can be very tricky. It's, it's very fact-intensive, but you do have some protection in terms of uh, you know the employer firing you. I mean, what looks like what happened here is that... Uh, you know, perhaps they did terminate you. I mean, we do see it sometimes where they terminate salespeople so they can essentially take their accounts and not pay them on it. Now, the employer is always allowed to reassign your accounts. They are not your accounts. You don't own them. You perform that work for the employer and you are paid for it. So the accounts belong to the employer. They can reassign them to whomever they wish. Um, obviously, you can quit at that point. Um, but they aren't allowed to keep your commissions that they owe you. Now, some places have these, you know, annuities and you know insurance things where you receive commissions years into the future those are all determined by your contract and you have to look at what your uh, what your particular contract says in that that's not a uh, labor law issue that's just a contract issue that you worked out with uh, with your employer so anyway very good question covered a variety of things independent contractors wrongful termination and commissioned wages upon termination so that was uh that one was very good the next one a little bit uh easier we'll get it here I quit my job and was given my last check. When I tried to cash it, it bounced, and now the employer will not return my phone calls. Well, I can guess why they're not returning your phone calls, because they probably don't have the money. And I'll talk about the 
the legal issues here and then some of the reality issues. Maybe I'll talk about the reality issues first because the reality is the employer doesn't have any money. So you can sue them, you can get all these penalties, but you really have to think about whether it's going to be worth it, whether you're going to be able to collect that money at uh, at the end of the day. Now, if it's you, th- you suspect that they do have the money, then obviously you want to go after it because the penalties here are substantial. What happens when you get a bounced check is, I mean, there's two different ways. There's, there's the standard bounced check where you get three times the amount up to $1,500 and that, uh, you know, I mean, if it's a, that's not going to work for you unless it's a very small, unless you're really not making much money. But the labor law is if it's a bounced payroll check, you have the option to have your wages continue as a penalty for up to 30 days. So if you were making, you know, let's say $10 an hour and you normally worked eight hours a day, that's $80 a day that you get every day that they don't produce the wages for that uh, for that particular check up to 30. So obviously you should send them a letter immediately, tell them that it bounced, probably send it certified just to make sure that they, they, they've got it. If they're not returning your phone calls, definitely send a certified letter and inform them that it didn't, that the paycheck didn't clear and you will be entitled to, you know, 30 days of wages. So if you're making $80 a day, that would be you know $2,400 in, in penalties. If you're making $500 a day, it will be quite a substantial sum of money. And that's where you do, you do see it. There was a, you know, a, the big uh, Supreme Court case for this was a, uh, a day model. She was a uh, model for some photographer and she was paid $500 a day. It wasn't a bounced paycheck. It was these, uh, these waiting time penalties. I'll talk about those right now. But you know, $500 a day times 30 days adds up to a, a lot of money very quickly. Now, the interesting thing with this question is it does get into these things called waiting time penalties, and that is failure to pay wages upon termination. So in this case, it's sort of a double whammy. The bounced paycheck, you'd automatically get, you know, the waiting time, you'd get the one day's wage for each day that you're you're not paid. But you also get that same exact penalty for failure to pay wages upon upon termination. So if they don't give you your last paycheck on time, or as in this case, your last paycheck actually bounced, which means you weren't paid your wages upon termination, you not only get the bounced paycheck penalty of 30 days wages, but you're also entitled to the failure to pay all wages upon termination penalty uh, for 30 days. So essentially you get double the damages that you would normally get. Now, if they had only failed to pay all your vacation upon termination or they fail to include your last day of work or, you know, there's a whole slew of things that the employers can screw up within your final paycheck. And if it is willful, you get that for uh, that penalty. Your wages continues for up to 30 days. A lot of people think it's an automatic award. It's not. Uh, the employer can have a whole bunch of defenses to it, but the defense of, uh, you know, the paycheck bounced and they couldn't get you the money and stuff like that, they're probably going to get hit with the uh, the double whammy there. The problem, of course, is great. You know, you were the model getting $500 a day. The paycheck bounced. You get $15,000 for the bounced paycheck. You get $15,000 for uh, waiting time penalties, and this employer owes you $30,000. Well, chances are they're just going to declare bankruptcy, and they they just don't, they're not going to have that type of money to pay you. Now, if it's, if you can get individual liability, you know, go after the individual owner, then that's great. You might be able to recover against them. But we'll talk. I'll get into that maybe a little bit later about what when you can go after the owner of a company and when you 
when you can't go after the owner of a company because it does make a very, very, very big difference, especially in these cases where the employer simply doesn't have the money. They will bankrupt their corporation and you know screw you out of your money uh, versus if you can get the individual, it's unlikely that an individual isn't going to declare bankruptcy only over your $30,000 claim or whatever it is that your particular labor claim is. Um, also, you're a wage creditor. You know They owe you wages, so you're pretty much up at the top of the list. The only buddy that gets in front of you is the uh, the government? You know, you got to pay George Bush, you got to pay Arnold Schwarzenegger first, and then wage claims come after that. So, if you can get individual liability against the owner, then that uh, uh, that works out uh, pretty well for you. So, we've got uh, we got time for one more question before we have to take our break. Um, here it is. My job wants to re- wants to require me to work on Saturdays. However, when I was hired. I told them that I went to school on the weekends and could not work. Can they require that I work on Saturday even if I work the other five days in the week? Yes, you can. Um, you know, everything in California, your labor law, is it's just a contract. It's whatever you can agree to, whatever you can bargain with with the employer. I mean, unless you have some employment contract or there's some specific statute against it, and for the vast majority of employees in California, they can require that you work uh, six days a week. They can require that you work overtime. And they can terminate you if you don't work it, even if it's on short notice, even if it they had told you previously that they weren't going to have you work it. Unless there's a contract in place where they said, you're going to work here and we're not going to require you to work overtime. And that has somehow been solidified into a contract. I mean, obviously, if you're a member of a union, you have your collective bargaining agreement. That's obviously a valid contract. But even if it's in the employee manual, it's unlikely to rise to the level of the contract. It's probably just going to be a gratuitous promise that was made to you, and they will be able to change that at will. Pretty much any employee manual says we can change these terms at will. But, you know, I mean, even if it didn't, uh, you know, unless it said these are etched in stone and we bargain for these terms, uh, it's unlikely that that you would be able to, to say that you have a contract to do that. So... There's a couple job classifications in California where there are specific limits on the amount of overtime that you work. Uh, The big one is 72 hours in a week. There is a rule against working seven days in a week, and that one is a little confusing. People get confused about it because it is so poorly enforced or poorly defined. You know, the actual statute is pretty clear, and it says employees can't be made to work... uh, you know, more than uh, six days in in seven. But unfortunately, that's been interpreted to mean, I mean, I think it actually says you get, you know, one day's rest in seven. And that's, unfortunately, that's been interpreted to mean that the employer can require that you work up to 28 days in a month, as long as you get on average one day of rest a week over the period of a month, then it's okay. So the employer can require that you work seven days one week and seven days the next week, and that's all fine uh, as long as you know somehow it averages out over the course of the month of you know being a four days off in the period of a month. So I don't, you know, I don't think that's really what the law says. You know, I think the courts kind of read it a little loosely, but they did read it that way. And there's, you know, that's the way the law is today. If you don't like it, you have to write your legislator and. Tell them you don't like it. Okay, it sounds like the music is playing, so it's time to take a break. I will pick up the rest of your questions on the other side of the break, so we'll see you in a few minutes. 